Hello, and welcome to episode four of Museopunks, a podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Jeffrey, and I'm here as always with my partner in crime, Suze. Hey, Suze, hey, how's from it going? Australia. How's I'm it going? Well, how are you? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Back from uh, vacation, I spent about 10 days completely, well, almost completely off the grid. Yeah, I thought you were meant to cut technology altogether, but I certainly got at least one email from you during that time, Jeff. Yeah, there was uh, there was an email and there was a couple tweets. Um, I, uh, I I told my staff here at the museum to... So uh, I, I've been here at my museum now for about 10 months, and in that 10 months, we've pushed a bunch of projects. I've been working like crazy, so I wanted to really take you know, a solid week or 10 days and completely just disconnect and spend some time away. And I told my staff only contact me if something's on fire or something went down. And, uh, I ended up getting one call and I fixed the problem underneath a palm tree with a cocktail on my iPhone. (laughs) Um, So pretty good. So how was your low tech time away? Did you did you get cravings? Did you sort of feel twitches in your fingers that wanted to be tweeting? Um, yeah, because, uh, the place I went was beautiful and I, I, you know, I did take a lot of pictures. I didn't share them in real time, but, um, I, uh, you know, it was good. So it's always good to, um, uh, kind of reset yourself, you know, and, and, and if as technologists, uh, day in and day out, we're staring at screens and looking at phones and coding apps and things like that. And it's, uh, sometimes I just need to take some time, decompress, and then come back energized, which I am. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think I certainly notice the, <laughs> when I'm away from when I'm away from technology for a few days, the first couple of days I get really antsy because mm-hmm. all I want to do is be online. And after that, I find that I can sort of relax away from it for a little bit longer. Like I sort of forget that urgent need to be in connection and contact with people all the time. Um, but the day, the first day or two, I do find it really hard. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a shift for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to kind of do some follow-up on on some stuff that has been happening maybe um, in the since our since our last episode. First of which um, is uh, this idea of empathy that's kind of been brought up online recently, stemming from a discussion we had with Dana Mitroff Silvers about design thinking. Um, I know you wrote a piece and there's been several kind of pieces popping up. Uh, Ben Callahan from Sparkbox, which is someone from completely outside the museum world. He's a, he works at a, um, an agency in Ohio, I believe wrote a piece about team projects and empathy was kind of emerging there. Um, that's pretty cool to see, isn't it? Um, it is, except I don't know if we're all talking about the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I have a feeling this is one of the reasons. So with my post, I sort of tried to get into these definitions of what we mean when we talk about empathy. Yeah. Because I think, I actually think that people do mean different things when they talk about it. And we Mm -hmm. have this sort of general sense that empathy is good and that it's important to be empathetic. And I certainly think so. In fact, when I wrote my piece it went in a completely different direction from what I was expecting it to. It was meant mm-hmm. to be like, a, yeah, empathy is good because you can understand the other members of staff that you work with and understand where they're coming from and that might help you with their work. Yes. Yeah. in no way where I ended right, up. Right, right. Um, but it was just trying to say, well, 
if we're talking about, say, institutional empathy with a museum versus empathy in dealing with teenagers, we're probably talking about different things there. So what does that what does that actually mean? Yeah, I I I I, I agree with you, I think. But, I, you know, I think this idea of kind of um, um, maybe if we broaden the idea of empathy toward a listening or toward being open to um, other kind of inputs um we may start to be talking about the same thing in a way maybe Um, okay yeah i can dig that i think that i think that's a really important thing is that capacity to to listen but also to try and understand where the other person's coming from so listening is part of it but then it's well what's that yeah the step after that and then the step after that is well how does that change your actions yeah for sure definitely um (laughs) And uh, the other thing that I wanted to bring up is uh, is drinking about museums, um, <laughs> because that that is another thing that's kind of been popping up everywhere I look uh, in on Twitter and on and in my re- feed reader. Um, I, I know down in Australia, you've been uh, having some events and and uh, Coven Smith wrote a piece and um, Ed, Ed Rodley, Rodley wrote a piece. Um, so. Uh, we'll drop a, a link to the Drinking About Museums uh, Google Plus community in the show notes because if you're if you're working in museums, I think it's a really cool movement to get uh, museum folks together to talk shop and 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 hopefully collaborate on some cool things. Yeah, I think I, so. We had one just this week, and I was talking to a couple of um, people who are. Um, who've been in the sector for quite some time, and this was their first drinking about museum session. Um, and we were talking about a sense of community. But for me, it's the fact that I could be here. I'm still an emerging professional, and there were a few other emerging professionals who were there at our drinking about museum sessions, and we were talking to people who are quite senior in the sector. I think that capacity to actually interact with people who are at a very different stage and different space in their career to you um, in a in a lovely environment where there's no pressure to sort of be formal and to try and impress people. You can actually just get together and have a chat and exchange ideas is a really exciting and important thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and sometimes the conversations can lead to badgers. <laughs> They can indeed. So it turns out that last last episode, after Bridget McKenzie was talking about badges, we we said that any any visitors who came with badges to to um our show got a prize. And it turns out that Elizabeth Merritt, who is our guest on today's show, she's the founding director for the Center of the Future of Museums. She herself has an alter ego that is Badger Merritt. <laughs> Uh, yes, I guess that is the, that is the case. Um, and we will certainly drop a uh, link to Badger Merit in the show notes, um, which can, um, we're we're talking about futures today with, with Elizabeth. We are. Uh, and it's a part two of the, uh, the future series that we're putting together here. Um, um, kind of building upon last month's episode that that kind of dealt with scanning of the future and 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 mega trends and this kind of big picture thing and i think uh, it it'll be good to um kind of talk to elizabeth merritt um 
about some some more kind of tactile um approaches that museums can can kind of undertake to to start positioning for the future totally now before we get into it can i ask you a question sure do you have dystopian future fantasies uh wow um (laughs) i just thought i'd throw it out there because i i I think when I look at, say, technology or all those sorts of things, my I sometimes like to do next steps. Like, well, what's the next step after? Once you get Google Glass, what's the next step and what's the one multiple levels down the track? And it, it seems to me that I start thinking of these sort of dystopian future fantasies, and I wondered if you do too. <laughs> well, uh, um, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> but I will say that um, I I'll just on my personal site, I think uh, not might have been the other day. I'll put a drop a, sh- a link to it in the show notes. Um, I linked to a piece by uh, uh, An Zhao, who is an artist formerly of New York. I'm, I think she's living in California now, um, and she wrote this about about uh, that was titled "On Technology" and kind of the paradoxes of technology and how. Um, you know, the same things that, that, that make us laugh at dictators, make us laugh at the unfortunate and that kind of showing that the, the bad and good things about technology. And she kind of said, you know, I'm a technology optimist, but that's just because I'm, I, my optimism lies in human beings, not in technology. And I kind of fall into that camp because I think that, um, Technology is one thing, but it's always going to take a human being to either make the best out of technology or make the worst out of it. And um, I tend to be optimistic and tend to have faith in humanity. So therefore, I think the future is promising. I think that Does that make sense? Like excellent. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think it's a really nice introduction to our interview with Elizabeth Merritt. <laughs> Elizabeth Merritt is founding director of the Center for the Future of Museums. Before being appointed CFM's first director, Elizabeth led the excellence programs at AAM, accreditation, museum assessment, and peer review, as well as the association's research activities. Prior to joining AAM, she spent 15 years working in museums in administration, curation, and collections management. Her areas of expertise include uh, futures studies, museum standards and best practices, ethics, collections management and planning, and assessment of nonprofit performance. Her books include National Standards and Best Practices for U.S. Museums and the AAM Guide to Collections Planning. She blogs for CFM at futureofmuseums.blogspot.com and tweets as at Future of Museums. Elizabeth. Welcome to Museopunks. Thank you, Jeff. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And um, uh, leading up to this interview, we were shooting emails back and forth. And I just wanted to start off because you sent some anecdotes about strangest jobs you've had um, that included diving assistant, studying shrimp, um, and you interviewed for a penguin keeper. So how how did you how did you get to in the museum world from from these? these animal zoology uh, positions? Oh, 
Oh, that's one of these wonders, wonderful, strange, and rambling stories. When I have museum studies students come to me and say, you know, how did you get a job in a museum? How did you plan your career? I say, oh, don't talk to me. There's no way you could replicate this arc in a million years. <laughs> I was in graduate school. I was actually doing cell and molecular biology at that point, dissecting chick eyeballs, which really gets creepy after a while. Oh, man. And I, I realized I didn't want to spend my life in a laboratory, so I, I left with a master's degree instead of getting a PhD, and I stopped and I said, what is the coolest job in the whole world I can imagine? And the answer I came up with, looking inside myself, was working in a museum. So I sent a letter to every museum in Massachusetts asking for a job, and one of them hired me. <laughs> awesome. Um, and I think Susan and I can both agree that uh, working in a museum is a pretty cool job. Yeah, I think you did pretty decently. And I, it's funny, you say that you'd never tell a student to follow your path, but almost everyone I speak to in the sector have these really strange and divergent paths to getting from wherever they start to wherever they sort of end up many years later. I actually think it's really common in our sector that people have these strange journeys. Well, I think the lesson there is don't aim straight for where you think you're going. Wander around in whatever seems like the best direction at the time and be confident you'll end up in a good place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess when you started, obviously the Centre for the Future of Museums only kicked off in 2008, so you couldn't have even imagined that this would be where you'd end up. So, But can you tell, because I don't know exactly what the CFM does or how it started or or any of those things. So can you tell us a little bit more about how, why the CFM came into being, what you do? Yeah, okay. Well, it started because 2006 was the 100th anniversary of what was then the American Association of Museums. We've since changed our name to the American Alliance of Museums. And the board challenged the staff in honor of the centennial to come up with some ideas for completely new initiatives. And the way they phrased it to us was, what could AAM do to really lead museums into the 21st century? And we came back with the somewhat smart-ass answer, well, it's a little hard to say because we don't know what the 21st century will be like. But they batted that one right back to us and said, well, why don't you go figure it out? So one of the initiatives we came back with and proposed was starting a think tank, a future studies think tank, to try and project what the 21st century would be like for museums. And, and sure enough, they bought that idea. <laughs> Which was the craziest one of the lot. And so when we restaffed the alliance to start the initiatives, it sort of was one of those give it to Mikey Healy eat anything moments, if you remember that advertising campaign. Yeah, they, they, they gave it to me because I guess they thought I had crazy enough ideas to make it work. And that indeed is one of my jobs, is coming up with about 12 crazy ideas a week to see if maybe one of them might go somewhere. We really do four things. First of all, we're trying to raise the awareness of museums of the need to think and plan in a longer time frame. Because as you said in your intro, Jeff, I, I ran the excellence programs at the Alliance for many years. And it was really frustrating because we had been doing the accreditation program for like 40 years at that point. So we had a really long history of seeing museums come through the program again and again and again, and we could really track their progress over decades. Mm -hmm. And we had a history of having seen a number of museums that would come through and the Accreditation Commission would look at them and say, wow, you really have some challenges. This, this looks a little rocky. But we read your long-range plan, and it looks like a really good plan. We think it's going to fix these problems. So go ahead. We'll renew your accreditation. Ten years later, they come back in. Guess what? The same problems were still there, or they've been replaced with equally serious problems. 
And I came away feeling like the problem was they kept trying to solve the problems right now instead of looking ahead of the curve. Uh, somebody told me recently that there's this anecdote about the hockey great Wayne Gretzky that when somebody asked him why he's such a great hockey player, he says, because I skate to where the puck will be. Right. And I think that's a great metaphor because museums really have to think about what's the world they think they'll be living in in 10 or 20 years before they write a plan for specifically what they're going to do in the next one or two or three years. Do you think that museums can be focused on both the now and 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 kind of being opportunistic in the present versus kind of positioning for the future? Are they disparate or are they intertwined? I mean, because museums are obviously understaffed and consumed with the now a lot of times. Oh, absolutely. You have to do both. Um, it's just like walking down the street. You have to keep an eye on where your feet are so you don't trip over something. But if you don't keep your eyes up, you won't know where you're going. Right. I think that when it's really hard being a museum director. And I think two kinds of errors that take place are focusing so much on the here and now that you fall over the cliff because you didn't see it coming. And you can be making absolutely sensible day-to-day decisions that seem very reasonable in light of today and tomorrow and next week, but lead you in the wrong direction so that you've backed yourself into a corner in two or three years. On the other hand, you have these really wonderful visionary directors that drive everyone nuts because they have this <laughs> grand... Yes, I was, was, I, was, I once was giving a workshop where one of the participants, when we were talking about the need for vision, rolled her eyes and said, it's a thin line between vision and hallucination. <laughs> and I, I think it, there is a danger of being a hallucinatory director where you come up with this great vision, but you can't tell people how to get from here to there, and so they're sort of lost in between. Yeah, okay. So I spend, for me, when I've been thinking about, you know, with my research and my PhD, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the impact of technology and the internet has on museums because that's been sort of my entry into this sector and into this kind of thinking. But museums are obviously at the mercy of all kinds of changes all the time. So what are, when, you, when you're sort of talking about these trends, what are the main trends and what are the main things that you've been really thinking about in your work lately? Well, let me back up just a bit. And I know you spent some some time on basic future studies last week with Bridget yeah. yep. last month. But I don't think she talked about the, the categories of scanning. And oh, okay. there, are, there are five categories of scanning. They're called the STEEP categories. And STEEP stands for social, technological, economic, ecological, and political. The basic idea of having these categories is to remind you to take a broad look at what's going on around you. Because people, frankly, tend to focus on technology because it's all the bright, shiny objects. It's the robots and the jetpacks and the internet and the iPhone and all the stuff you'd like to buy or get for Christmas. But those other four are really important, too. As a matter of fact, I like to point out in some ways the biggest important thing about technology isn't the gadgets, it's the effect they have on culture and behavior and the way they shape people's expectations. Right. So just as an example, I think one of the biggest trends that has been sparked and fueled by technology but is not inherently technological is people's expectation that they really be able to participate and contribute to cultural experiences. They don't see it as a passive consumer experience anymore. We're not going to go and see and listen and, and, and absorb this knowledge. We're going to go do things and have opinions and be able to participate and have a real role in whatever's going on. So you see the rise of citizen science and citizen 
citizen art and citizen history. And you see the rise of museums running projects where they crowdsource some of the content or they invite people to actually help curate the materials by saying, oh, I know this about that collection even though you didn't, so I'm going to write in and tell you here are some tags for that photograph you didn't know about. So I think that's a, that's a huge cultural change that museums are dealing with that was fueled by technology but isn't inherently technological. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, the stuff that I'm really interested in is how that technology does change our change our practice or the need to do practice in different ways. It's not so much, I mean, a shiny gadget is awesome, but that's not the stuff that really gets me fascinated. It's things like those elements of participation that I think do become really interesting in this space. So what other trends? If you're talking then about technology changing the way people act, are there other trends that change the way people act? Uh, well, another another trend fueled by technology that plays out in the cultural and political realm that's really affecting museums right now is the expectation that you're able to collect massive amounts of data and make meaning from it and therefore mm-hmm. be able to really say, this is what happened because of what I did. Mm-hmm. And this has ramped up everybody's expectations of what any nonprofit should be able to do to quote unquote prove that it deserves support. Mm. And that becomes really tricky because of course once you decide to measure something that that creates all sorts of effects on how you do it. So when you choose what you're going to measure that then influences your behavior. And a, a lot of the really important things that museums do are hard to measure. And if they narrow in on metrics that are like, okay, so these kids were able to graduate from high school because they participated in this immersion program at the, at the museum. That's a great thing, but that's a fairly small picture of everything that's important about the museum. And we have to figure out how we can continue to prove our case for support and our importance to society as a big picture and not just the small measurable steps. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth, a lot of your writing on the blog, uh, at least recently, has to do with um, the idea that uh, a lot of you know, other sectors are experiencing these same things. So do you think that this idea of, of, of measurement or, or something like that um, is an area where museums can work with other types of institutions um, to kind of address these things? Yes, I think that one sector that is very important for us to work with is the the philanthropic and foundation sector in general, because they're part of the the great mass of of people and the pool of funds shaping that expectation. And they're starting to get really sophisticated about mining public data Mm -hmm. to make decisions about who they'll fund. So that's one very influential group to work with. Um, I I also think that, to to get away from the direct question of support, I think that the groups that are really learning how to mine and connect big data on the Internet, we need to have more of those groups talking to museums about how we can have a bigger picture of the data that's out there that we can bring in to inform our operations. Um, In the U.S., for example, once you know somebody's uh, location because of their zip code, their extended zip code, there's all sorts of fabulous demographic data you can pull in to link to your database to tell you things that are important about who's coming and who's not coming and how they're behaving at your museum. A lot of a lot of that, uh, you know, has uh, museums 
a lot of museums, I think, are operating with antiquated systems, though, too. So how how can a museum that, um, you know, might not be uh, working with cutting edge technology on the back end kind of kind of make use of this big data, though, because it's out there and it's available and it's it's something that we can really um, use to glean insights from. Um, but it's sometimes it's hard to to kind of infuse into our existing operations. Well, I think the underlying question there that's even more fundamental isn't necessarily about big data per se. It's how can museums keep up with technology? Mm. And I think that there are a couple of choices that can be made. I think museums that are daring enough to be really on the cutting edge, whether they're big or small, can benefit from the oh wow effect. They can actually get funding because being on the bow wave, as it were, funders are willing to come and say, ooh, digitization of images, that's so cool. We'll we'll fund your doing that. And that only works for a certain point of time right. because as soon as it becomes mainstream expectation, they're not going to fund you to do what they consider to be your basic work. If you were right out there in the forefront, even if you aren't a big museum, if you have the idea and the willingness to tackle it, you can get some of the support that's available for a brief moment in time while it's the hot new thing. So that's one way to tackle that question of building infrastructure when you don't have really deep pockets. But at the other end, I think one of the really cool choices available to museums is to go totally low tech. There is a huge segment of society that really values us for the primary physical experience that is in many ways unique to the physical location of the museum. It's the real stuff. It's the immersive environment. It's the opportunity to not engage with the digital and the virtual. So I think that museums have a choice of going offline and saying, we're the place you can be away from all of these immersive, intrusive, online, interconnected experiences and just be with us and with the people you came with. Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in... We're sort of talking about sort of high-tech and low-tech and being on the cutting edge, and I really like that point that if you are on the cutting edge, it actually opens up funding because that's quite interesting. I hadn't considered that in a lot of ways before. Um, But it's also about more than that, isn't it, in terms of, say, staffing and staff development? Because if we go back to the the data idea of, well, what happens once you have all these new ways of measuring, you know, who's coming to your institution and things like that... I don't know how many institutions necessarily use that information particularly well for their for their planning. I certainly think some do, but I'm just does, does the measurement in and of itself change um, how institutions are running, or or are there do we need different skills in the in, in in the sector to make sense of these sorts of things? Oh, I absolutely think we need different skills in the sector, and that's why one of the things I really like to encourage museums to do is hire from outside the traditional pipeline. Because I think if you start looking to other fields, um, and I've been trying to create lists of what that might be, it includes, of course, technology startups, but also other social enterprises, uh, people from from theater and music, any other perspective that can come in and say, wow, I'm coming at this from a really different angle, can change the way we think. Uh, One of the most interesting people that I met recently is a gentleman named Richard Slaney, who is at the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. And he is their first, he was their first real person to, to tackle digital engagement. 
And he came in with these really interesting ideas that were completely new for a symphony about what they could do with online digital engagement and putting out their material in different formats. And he's built up the staff of the Philharmonia to have the biggest sort of digital engagement staff of any symphony, and they're doing really innovative stuff. And it's because they had an organizational culture that somehow allowed one person with really cool ideas and a different skill set to demonstrate how they could go in a different direction. So I think the question for any organization is how do you be how can you be open to that kind of input and how can you try and attract really creative, open-minded people, whether or not they have a museum background per se, to try and kickstart your thinking. Yeah, it kind of it kind of harkens back to a, a previous episode that we did on design thinking and how how that kind of cross-departmental or cross-sector um, collaboration can really kind of infuse new ideas and, and, and bring some, some energy into, into the space. I think that one of the hardest things to change in a museum really is the organizational culture, because that's what tends to constrain all of these other changes. Um, when you have a museum where people had this ambition for years to grow up to be a museum director, a museum curator, sometimes the image they have in their head of what that job is, is is decades out of date. And yet when they get the job, that's what they want to do, to be the traditional expert, Mm. traditional authority figure. And I think one of the challenges is to really encourage people to be the staff of the future. And some of the most interesting work I see being done is being done by people whose positions didn't even exist a decade ago. You can't go back 10 years and find a director of digital engagement or a uh, director of uh, a curator of community engagement. These are new concepts. And I think because they're inventing the role, they tend to be much more creative in in what they do. Yeah, which in some ways actually goes back to where we started this interview with, you know, when you were looking forward and from cutting up chick's eyes, which is kind of, you know, right. You couldn't have imagined that you'd be running the Centre for the Future of Museums, but it it is that kind of unusual trajectory then that gives you the capacity to do really interesting things in that space. I think you're right. I think because I had to entirely invent this job, it gave me a lot of freedom to try really crazy things because I had no preconceptions about what it was I was supposed to do. Yeah. Elizabeth, are you, how do you feel about failure? And when you try, you know, when we talk about innovation and we talk about, um, you know, new crazy things, um, how, how, how do you view failure? I think failure is a fundamentally important skill that people don't practice enough. Actually, one of my ambitions, I'm really trying, one of my crazy ideas I'm trying to figure out how to fund is to have a national failure prize for museums, where every year people get to self-nominate for, I had the most epic fail of the entire year, and here's what people could learn from it. And they have to agree when they enter the contest that if they win, they'll take it on the road and speak and write widely about their failure. Uh, Of course, we're talking about failures that that (laughs) failed in, in grand and ambitious ways, not just because you messed up. Sure. But if the whole premise of the center is the future is almost certainly going to be very different from today, and the farther out you go, the more different it's going to be, presumably museums are going to have to behave differently in order to thrive in those different environments. Well, the 
this was a difficult challenge for an organization like the Alliance to take on because for 100 years we'd been about helping the field decide what are our standards and best practices. As you said in your introduction, I wrote the book on it. So we're say, we've been saying to people for 100 years, okay, we've tried this out a long time. We're finally comfortable writing it down and saying this is what you ought to do. How do you go from that? to saying, you know, but some percentage of you have to break all the rules and try something entirely different because maybe you'll come up with something better. And you can't encourage people to do that without also supporting them when they fail because they're going to fail a majority of the time if they're really trying enough cool things. Well, that's when you, in today's blog post, which is called Balancing the Equation, you've written about the need for museums to let go of variables that they can't control. And I think in in sort of this conversation about changing things and, and, and failure and the capacity to actually try out new things, a lot of that is to do with letting go of the variables that you can't control. But Obviously, that's a pretty thing, pretty hard thing for a lot of museums to 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 let go of. So, I mean, we might have museums that hold on to their mission, which is which is the opposite. But how do you let go of all the things you can't control? How do you even know what are the things you can control or not control? Well, the point I was making in that blog post is you you really can only pick a very limited number of variables to nail down. And I was suggesting that the one thing you start with is your mission. But I think museums, I think all nonprofits have to really rethink the way they're thinking about mission. Too often, it's really a description of activities. Uh, here's you know, we collect, preserve, and interpret through collections and programs and traveling exhibits. It's it's a list that makes everybody comfortable because they're in it. Their role is in it, and so they know they're secure. I think missions ought to be a description of how the world is different because you exist. And if you can't tell somebody how the world is going to be different and presumably better because your organization exists, how can you ever convince them to support you, either because you're producing a good or a service they want to buy or because they they so buy into this vision of the world you have that they're willing to philanthropically support you? I think that one of the ways to get people to let go of all of those other variables, which I suggested included, you know, place, because quite often people start out saying, well, the museum should be here because this is a really beautiful site. Well, maybe it's a beautiful site, but people can't get to it. How's that going to help? Or we should have this architect design the building because he's really important, but is he going to create a functional building that really serves your needs? Or we're going to be open Tuesday through Sunday, 10 to 5, because those are traditional hours. Yeah, but what if people can't come then? Start at the other end and say, we want you know, our city to be a vibrant arts community where everybody has access to an arts education. Or fill in your blank there. What is your vision of how the world is different and better because you exist? And then everything else you choose, ask, does it serve to create that change? Does it further that purpose? And if it isn't the best way to get there, you have to be ruthless about considering other alternatives, even if... That means breaking all the traditional rules and saying, you know, we're going to put the museum in this neighborhood that's really run down because we think it has the best opportunity in 10 or 20 years of being the vibrant heart of the new arts community in the city. Or if it means we're going to renovate an old warehouse instead of hiring a star architect to design it. 
or we're going to be open all night on the weekends because we think the young hipsters are going to come hang out at two in the morning and that's really when they'll fall in love with us <laughs> so in that same post you draw attention to the oakland museum uh who've restructured their organizational chart to kind of place community at the center rather than their collection is this is that a, is that an example of, of of what you just spoke about like 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 placing community and, and putting the emphasis on making a difference in people's lives um rather than on objects absolutely and i think that that's the kind of that also demonstrates how disruptive events can help fuel change and help create a, a an opportunity to grow into the future. I've invited their director, Lori Fogarty, to blog about that reorganization, and um, she said she will, so I'm really looking forward to that post. But long story short, the opportunity to do that reorganization was because the city, which had hired a lot of the staff and, and paid for a lot of the operations, basically decided they couldn't afford to run a museum. And so they negotiated a transfer of all of the staff and all of um, the responsibility to the private nonprofit that, that was supporting the museum. And that meant essentially laying off all the city staff and then rehiring people as private nonprofit employees. And that was, you can see that as tremendously disruptive, and I'm sure it was. It was, it was traumatic and upsetting to people, I'm sure. But it was a great opportunity, instead of just to rebuild the traditional structure, to rethink something completely new. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things we were emailing in advance of this session, and you mentioned you've been doing a bit of thinking about museum funding and changing economic circumstances. Are there global movements, are there economic pain points that you think are really going to be impactful for museums in the coming years? I mean, talking about the Oakland Museum just then, that's a massive change that they went through, and at least in part because of funding, yeah? Yeah. Yes. In the U.S., there are four traditional sources of support for any given museum. There is government support, local, state, and federal, which has been steadily decreasing over the last 30 to 40 years. There is private philanthropic support from foundations and from individuals. There's earned income, whether it's from paying for tickets or, or doing facilities rental or running a shop or a restaurant. And then there's the draw off the endowment. And for us, for the past, since 2008, when the recession hit, all of those took a hit. But I think the bigger sea change I see underlying this is that I think there's an increasing blurring of identity between nonprofits and for-profits. And I think that the psychology, I suspect that at least the psychology of this is, is global, or at least not confined to the U.S., and what I mean by the psychology is that I see more and more young entrepreneurs starting companies who have mission ambitions. They want to change the world in specific ways. They're not just out to make money. They're doing this particular business where their heart is because they really see it as being a good thing that does good. Mm. And I'm sure that's been true in the past too, but I think it's more true now. And at the same time, with an erosion of government and philanthropic support, museums and other nonprofits are having to be more hard-headed about 
producing something people are willing to buy or producing a result that people are willing to pay for indirectly, like because we can improve the local graduation rate of our high school, the city is willing to support us because they need to have a better graduation rate or they need to reduce recidivism among ex-convicts. You know, there are specific social goods we're producing that they want. So between those two ends, the, the for-profit entrepreneurs having ambitions to do good in, in various ways, and nonprofits having to get more hard-headed about producing value for what they do, we're really converging, and I think the edges are beginning to blur. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't I don't think anyone could argue that kind of funding streams are, are, you know, museums are having to think about funding in completely new ways. I mean, you know, look at, look at crowdfunding, microfunding, and then also social innovation projects that are, that are coming about. Um, you know, you've been director of, of CFM for, you know, six years now. Um, have there, have there been any like huge surprises for you regarding your research or, you know, things that, have impacted museums over the course of your kind of tenure there? Hmm. Big surprises. Big surprises. Well, it's hard for me to tell the difference between things that were surprises because they reversed my expectations and things that are surprises because I didn't used to look at the world in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, when I started nosing around looking at the steep categories of politics and economics, I was really surprised and disturbed to see in how many places in the U.S. there not only was a reduction in government support, there was an active movement to tax nonprofits or charge museums for charge nonprofits for services that used to be given them for free because they were a social good. So I think that I was something I never would have projected five years ago, either because I didn't think about those things deeply and hadn't read in those areas, or because it really is a new thing that other people wouldn't have expected either. Um, just for, for shiny technological developments, since they always are fun to throw in, I think the, the explosion of the sophistication and reduction in cost of 3D scanning and printing has just been delightful and fun, and I've really enjoyed watching that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. So I, I think wrapping up here, uh, as somebody who daily in and out deals with museums and deals with the future, um, how optimistic are you? about the future of museums? Oh, I'm, see, I'm a, still a biologist by background and training, and I am absolutely optimistic in that in 100 years, another 100 years, another 200 years, there will be things we call museums that are beloved and thriving. I don't know that any of them are going to be the specific museums that exist now. And I don't know that what people mean by the word museum will be exactly what we mean by the word now, but we're going to be here in some way, shape, or form. I think that whether the museums that exist now are the same ones we see in 100 or 200 years depends in part on their willingness to change and to evolve and to mutate with the times in response to the evolutionary pressures that we're undergoing. Yeah, fantastic. Now, wrapping up for for us, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you'd really like to talk about or or anywhere that you would like to tell people to to follow up with you on these sorts of issues and discussions? Well, 
I'm going to end with a piece of advice and a, a specific resource that I can recommend. My piece of advice is if, if people really want to prime their thinking about the future, I encourage them to read as widely as possible. And I mean read as in a very broad sense of consuming new information. Uh, buy magazines you never normally would, would touch. Watch YouTube videos, even if they're silly videos that you would think are wasting time. Um, sign up for Twitter and follow some interesting people and read the links that they post. It's getting outside of your normal orbit and your normal circle of, oh, this is who, who I listen to and where I get my info. That's what gives you the information to really begin to be able to imagine different futures. And one of the resources I can recommend there is we do a free weekly e-newsletter called Dispatches from the Future of Museums. You can sign up for it from our website. We'll, we'll post a link in the show notes. And we post anywhere between 10, 12 to 14 stories a week that we've seen in the news from all sorts of sources that we think give us little hints of where things might be going. Fantastic. And as a recipient of that e-blast uh i uh i can tell you that i find extreme value in it so uh, we will put it uh link to it in the show notes as well as all the websites uh and and blogs um that you have um elizabeth thanks so much for this great discussion i think we covered a lot and really enjoyed the uh the time here with you today fabulous thank you so much susan thank you jeff All right, Suze, no mentions of badgers from Elizabeth, but I think we did cover some awesome territory, and I think uh, uh, I'm going to take a lot away from that discussion. How about you? Yeah, I think so as well. I'm, I really loved Elizabeth's point in terms of think, for museums thinking about missions and asking how the world is different because you're in it. I think that's actually a really nice um way for museums to be thinking about their impact and their possible impact into the future. Yeah, definitely, because it really does all boil down to the mission. I mean, like, uh, you know, all nonprofits, they need to really kind of focus and and pursue that mission with, with their being. And I think if they do that um, and they kind of, you know, keep their eyes on, on what's happening, I think uh, things will work out for sure. Um, so all of the show notes, uh, about what we talked about today with Elizabeth and, and, um, you and I, they, uh, they can be found at, uh, museopunks.org slash zero four. And, um, you know, uh, if you have ideas or comments, uh, we welcome them. There's an open comment thread. Comments have been kind of slow, Suze. On the site. Yeah, I, I wonder whether we're not chatty enough on the site or whether people are just a little scared. Are you scared of us? Are I we scary? I don't know. If if we're not scary or if we need to be more chatty, uh, why don't you tell us on the site and then you know we'll we'll uh we'll that's what the that's what the site's there for. So um we're open to it and we love hearing from I you know, we get a lot of feedback via Twitter and via our personal personal sites. Um but we really want the Museo Punk site to kind of be the home base for any ideas or conversations that stem out from what we talk about with guests. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a nice way then we can refer um, people to, you know, we can build up that archive so that if there are things that people want to go back to, there's a way to revisit it as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, you can find me online at 
uh, I'm at Static Made on Twitter, app.net, and uh, I write at staticmade.com. Suze, uh, how about you? Where, where where can they find you? Yeah, I am at museumgeek.wordpress.com is my blog, and I'm at shineslike is my Twitter handle. Awesome. Uh, and we would ask if you like the show or you hate the show. Uh, if you hate the show, don't do this. But rate or review us on, <laughs> on iTunes. Uh, it helps tremendously with discoverability. Um, and I think uh, we've, gotten a com- we've gotten a review or two, which is nice. Um, so uh, we really appreciate that. And um, with that, uh, I think uh, that's a wrap. Suze, what do you yeah, think? fantastic. I had a lot of fun with this episode. So uh, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Elizabeth. All right. We'll talk to you next next time. Okay. Ciao, ciao.